Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Matt Stoller, Director of Research at the American Economic Liberties Project, a contributor on the YouTube show Breaking Point, author of Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Matt is essentially a policy wonk and advisor within the Democrat Party, but a fantastic geezer and a beautiful fella who once had the job of being my sidekick on an FX show I did called Brand X in the United States. Don't worry, no one did. It's a fantastic conversation. You'll really enjoy it. It's brilliant to hear someone who understands the nuts and bolts of bureaucracy. And in particular, I learned from that conversation that why politics is so turgid and slow moving. And it further inspired me in my belief that what we really require is radical change that will not come from within existing political systems. Yeah. Listen to shout outs. So here's some listener shout outs. Gemma Johnson says, I just listened to your latest podcast with Nicholas Glynos. Great episode. Thank you. Yeah, we talked about psychedelics. It was brilliant. Lily Finley says, my name is Lily and I'm a 21 year old avid listener from New Zealand. I want to thank you for the amazing work you do and the beautiful minds you connect your audience with. I especially enjoyed your Under the Skin episode with Paul Kingsnorth. Yeah, I love him. You two spoke such accurate words to the feelings and reality I've been struggling to describe for a while now. I've noticed in my local circles how disconnected we've become from one another, nature and the divine. If we continue with an individualistic outlook on life, we may never find collective power against elites. Lily, I think those are all really important points. I read Paul's stuff pretty regularly on Substack. And what I find interesting about him is, is his willingness to be hmm, mobile with Christian thoughts. He's, he's a Christian. But you know sometimes when Christianity seems like a shortcut, we think, oh God, these people have just believing in this Christianity because they can't be bothered to think hard enough. Well, this guy, I don't get that impression at all. I think he sort of loves the message of Christ and he's a rigorous intellectual thinker with a pretty sturdy academic background. And he just also talks about feelings. One of the things I find hard about politics these days is, is as if they don't understand real people living in the real world and we have day-to-day emotions and feelings, loneliness and despair. So thanks anyway, Lily, for that. Trina says, hello, I just wanted to say I enjoy listening to your podcast. I've been blown away by your intellectual articulation on current issues. Thanks for being a voice of uncensored information to the masses. Sincerely, Trina, USA, Kentucky. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I love you. Um, If you want to sign up for our community, you should go to russellbrand.com now and sign up for my mailing list. If you do, there's live Zoom calls. There's one coming up Friday the 17th. I'll be... um, doing a live stream so sign up for the mailing list and there'll be a link in the description there uh, this event and also there's five weeks to go until my one day event with Wim Hof and Vandana Shiva that's on July the 10th you should um, definitely sign up for that we've only got a small number of tickets it's a very small and intimate event all the money goes to charity and I think it's going to be a beautiful affair and check this out we are doing a live episode of Under the Skin with Gabor Mate live at our HQ. There's only going to be 80 seats available, so uh, we'll join up for my mailing list to hear about that. Go to russellbrand.com and sign up now if you want to see Gabble Matty talking to me live for an episode of Under the Skin. It'd be fantastic. Obviously, if you want to awaken the old consciousness, get yourself on the Awakening channel on YouTube and hit subscribe. The last video is how to control your inner life. Is your inner life in chaos? You should have a look at that. Also, as you're on Luminary right now, you should meditate and perhaps consider listening to the latest guided meditation I did called Calming a Chaotic Mind. But now it's time to make your mind a little more chaotic by listening to the beautiful, brilliant, well-educated and adorable Matt Stoller on Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation 
combination of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. <laughs> I know you quite well enough. <laughs> oh, come on, next we should might as well do a podcast immediately. What do, you, what do you need an hour? Do you need someone to groom you? Do you need someone to fluff you, massage you, prepare you? <laughs> sure, that sounds... Um... Uh, well, I don't know how you want me to respond to that. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin, and I think we should leave in that preamble. I'm so happy to see your face. As soon as I, you're one of them faces, oh, what do you do? You inspire something in me. It's kind of a comfort. It's not a comfort I get from feeling like non-threatened, because I know that you have a fierce intellect and that you really, really understand stuff. But I, I feel like I'm entering into a, a great cloud of amorphous intelligence. And whilst I deeply suspect you might be inept in your personal life, I know that in your professional life, you're an extremely capable person. Thank you. I like to, I, I well, I don't know. Should I say th- thank you? <laughs> I don't know. You could, you could refute the charge that you're inept in your personal life because I don't have any evidence for that. I'm just, I just suspect it. I mean, I might, I'm like full of rage. Ah. That I keep suppressed. Um, but, you know, and I, and I put it out through my, like, you know, I can, like, connect on an intellectual level. But outside of that, you're like, you know, you might get to some of that rage. And I, I got to got to leave that uh, got to leave that out of the world. Can I tell you something that I'm experiencing a lot lately? I spent all my time thinking about issues of social justice, not in the manner that that's, that term's come to be used in the uh, American cultural war. I mean, talking about institutional hypocrisy, corruption, uh, analysis of the relationships between different pillars of the establishment, congressional corruption, lobbying, dirty money and dirty politics. All these issues and ideas that I truly think that if we were able to investigate and successfully intervene in, we could alter the course of history, which I know you must believe too, because I've listened to you talk, I've read your writing, and we've been friends and like we're consistently friends and hung out a lot for a few years, a few years back. But actually how the rage inspired by those issues ends up being expressed is like minor parking violations, altercations at Legoland theme park, which has led to a life ban from Legoland. I'm exiled. I'm the Roman Polanski, the Julian Assange of Legoland, hopefully without any of the complex charges that are allied in both those cases, just the sort of uh, filmmaking and, and uh, I would say pioneering social justice work. So is that what happens to you, Matt? Do you, learn, you, do you know all this stuff about the world and its corruption and then just to sort of kick a cat? You know, I actually don't think that the anger and the like the rage doesn't come from the rage preceded the knowledge. Right. The you know, I mean, I, I, I don't feel like, you know, today you have a toothache. Right. And you go to a dentist and get that dealt with or you have sleep apnea or whatever. And you dealt with it. like 150 years. You, it's a pretty good chance you would just die in, in excruciating pain. And so, like, objectively, 
it's not that things are worse. It's not like, oh, everything is terrible. Like, I think that we have, one of the things I like about the way that you approach the world is that you start from the kind of the question of what is the human soul? And then from, you build on top of that a politics. And I think that that's the only way to ultimately do politics. And so, kind of, I believe that, you know, who we are, is, there's a sort of immutability to who we are. And so to me, when I talk about like how I feel about the world, and right now I'm in a rageful state, but that's not always true. That came before the knowledge, right? That came before the understanding. It sort of pushed me to understand institutional power, but it's not, I'm not like in full of rage because of how the world, um, you know, is unfair or whatever. You're just full of rage because you're full of rage or you're full of love because you're full of love. It's like, and then the world is the way that it is. So I like disentangle those two things. Right. The rage precedes this sort of knowledge of corruption. Yeah. And you can turn the rage into anything. Like you, you can turn it into, um, you know, you can turn, you can just decide um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to just be a bully. Right. I'm going to, and I'm going to scale that over trillions of dollars or, you know, what would be a private equity baron and just, I'm going to take, use my bullying through a spreadsheet, right? I'm going to murder people through a spreadsheet. Like you can do that. Like that's a, that's an equal, you know, you can choose to do with what you have, you know, many, you know, many different things, or at least if you come from like my background, which is, you know, a sort of wealthy educated background, you have the ability to scale the, um, scale one's power in lots of different ways. Um, and so it's not that there's there's not necessarily a rage at injustice, or at least if there is a rage at injustice, you can take that rage and you can decide to further injustice, right? I mean, there's there's lots of different ways to 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 take lessons about the world and use them in 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 different ways. I mean, this is all getting very abstract. I mean, I can it's probably better to talk about markets and things that I like know about, but that's just generally like how I think about. We'll get into the markets, Matt. Don't worry, the markets are coming. But I think it's like it's <laughs> it, it, it significantly you've mentioned already that, that you um, that you the the rage uh, precedes the con the conditions or at least the stimuli that you might attach that rage to because I think that a lot of people don't have that awareness in fact I feel that we live in a broadly speaking unconscious culture one time I spoke to uh, an economist Matt I'm not proud of it he was a professor from somewhere like Stanford he was legit and I wish to God I could remember his name but the, but one of the things I tried to say to him was like that what do you think emotionally underwrites late capitalism and he said of course greed and Many like you know like it was interesting because it, you know as you must know as a person that's been through academia yourself it's sometimes difficult to get abstractions from academics they are often unwilling to stray beyond the remit of their academic undergirding like they to, but for me there is a requirement to approach these things in a kind of a I don't know a, like in a polymathic manner that like you you have to look at the how these things intersect and the idea that many of us are angry for a variety of reasons that we might then project onto sort of appropriate or convenient issues, I think is an, an interesting cultural one. But the fact is that you, I know that you understand very well the kind of um, social inequalities and the recently exacerbated and continually increasing social phenomena that might be said to legitimately provoke rage your book this book goliath that you've written uh, is uh, like uh, about monopoly power and democracy 
And a lot of our earlier conversations were kind of framed around like uh, issues that I imagine in your book. And so can you tell us like, you know, that book was, I think, published in 2019, it says EMA. So like in the last three years, I imagine the, the conditions that you wrote about have worsened. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned in the last three years. Right. Well, so they've, it's interesting because they've worsened, but they've also um, improved in in a bunch of different ways. Um, it's hard. It's kind of like the the institutions themselves. Okay. So why don't I just tell you what the book is about? So it's a history, right? I got my start in politics really during the financial crisis. So I was working on the House Financial Services Committee during the bailouts in two thousand nine and ten, um, and you know the the bailouts, the foreclosure crisis, all of that. So you know the, I was working for a congressman and. You're welcome. We fixed everything. It's all good now. But I learned from that. I looked around to the policy. I'm a Democrat. So I was like working with people in the Obama administration and people in Congress, and they were all making really bad decisions. Uh, they were saying, oh, this crisis, which was caused by a consolidation of, of power in the banking system and in finance, you know what we need to solve that? We need to solve that by further consolidating banking power. Right. And I was like, that seems like a really bad idea. Why are we doing it that way? And a lot, I knew a lot of people and, and they weren't corrupted. They weren't getting paid off. Um, so there's a sort of a traditional left wing argument, which is, oh, it's all about lobbying money and campaign contributions or, you know, and every country has its own mechanism to understand corruption. But it wasn't corruption in the sense of just payoffs, because I knew plenty of people who just legitimately thought that it was a good idea. Right. If you decentralize power, then the men in suits who seem very sure of themselves will not be able to make the important decisions. And do you mean that like anybody should be able to make decisions about, you know, their little corner of finance, like, and you'll know, point to that person on the street with the weird hat or the, you know, whatever it is they look like. There's just- Why did you use that example? Oh, well, I- uh, My hat. Do you look like my hat? I don't like your hat. <laughs> I was thinking about you. I was specifically <laughs> during that time, people were like, we do not want to break up the banks because then Russell Brand will have more power. That was that was very much it's not known, but in Congress, that was like the subtext to everything we did. Um, no, but you, you know what I mean? Like the, the if you decentralize power, the consequences is that, you know, everybody will have to wield a little bit of power. And if you believe in technocrats and experts, and this is a common theme that, you know, you and I have talked about, but if you put your faith, and it is a religious faith in technocrats and experts, then the, uh, and you could go back there, there's, you know, same thing, the divine right of kings, aristocracy, you know, you go back thousands of years. If you believe in that system, that some people are better than others, then because they are ordained by some divine spirit, then the idea of decentralizing power is not only the wrong thing to do for technical reasons. It's the it's an actually an immoral way to run society. And that is the way that most of the policymakers thought about the world and a lot of voters, too, in 2009 and 10. And so when I came out of that, I, I was like, I had to explain that. I was like, people don't understand what happened. And I didn't understand it either. I was like, what happened? Right. And um, ultimately, what I what I, I found uh, this congressman named Wright Patman, because so when during the financial crisis, when everything was blowing up and like they were like, oh, there's a market over there. Um, and then it just like the liquidity drained and then it blew it blew up. Nonprofits can't borrow anymore. Cities can't borrow anymore. And all of these things that had been working. Right. It was like a big set of pipes and they just started randomly to burst. The only person that I found who knew what was going on, like the lobbyists didn't know the Treasury people, the Federal Reserve, nobody knew what was happening. There's this one woman who is an 80-year-old economist and poet named Jane Darista. 
and um, or she was 75 at the time. And she was she was like, oh, this is going to blow up. And then it did. Oh, that's going to blow up. And then it did. And I was like, how do you know all this? And she like sent me a bunch of papers that she wrote in the 80s and 90s and 2000s being like, oh, there's a shadow banking system and it's a really bad thing. And I was like, how did you know all this? And she said, oh, well, I worked for this guy named Wright Patman, who was a congressman uh, from 1929 to 1975. And I worked for him when he was the head of the banking committee in the 1960s and 70s. And he had been trying to hold this system of New Deal regulations that had constrained financial power together. And then there was this uprising among young Democrats in 1975, like Bill Clinton's generation, to get rid of him. And they successfully dethroned him as the head of the banking committee. And that was the ideological shift in the Democratic Party, that moment that I had been trying to figure out, like, why did my party, the party of working people, ostensibly, move to taking the side of the financier and the monopolist? And so then I went, had to go back and say, well, who was this guy, Wright Patman? And what I learned later is that it wasn't just about finance. He had also passed a very important antitrust law in 1936 called the Robinson-Patman Act that constrained chain stores. The chain store of its time wasn't Walmart or Amazon. It was called the A&P supermarket chain. But it did the very similar things to Walmart that Walmart and Amazon and Target and all those guys do today, which is kill independent stores, boss around suppliers and farmers and workers. And this law prevented them from using certain techniques, uh, one called the key one being what's called price discrimination from doing that. And I was like, why is this guy Wright Patman, who constrained chain stores in the 1930s and then banks in the 1970s? Like this is this is a philosophy. And it turns out he had actually in 1932 impeached the the secretary of the Treasury who was the third richest man in the country. His name was Andrew Mellon and served in, in, in Treasury from 1921 to 1932. And it was just this extraordinary story. I mean, this guy, the, the joke in the 20s was, you know, three presidents served under Andrew Mellon, right? I mean, it was he was considered, you know, he, he was a bil- basically a billionaire and he controlled Treasury and the Fed and the taxing service. Like, so I was like, I've never heard of this guy, right? He also put Alexander Hamilton on the $10 bill. Like, I've never heard of this guy. And yet you had this incredible drama around power, right? This guy controls a large chunk of the private economy and has a big government portfolio. And then Ed Wright Patman impeaches him, gets rid of him. Then he constrains chain stores. Then they fight in the 50s, 60s and 70s over banking power. And then he gets undermined by Bill Clinton's generation. Bill Clinton's first election was in 1974, which he lost. But but that was there was a whole gen. That was like when the boomers really came into democratic politics. And then from then on, from 1975, onward, right? It was just this steady march of the new Andrew Mellons, the new people who were who believed in finance, who believed in sort of this new aristocracy for moral reasons. And so the book really goes into like the origin of corporate America, the the which was, was in the 1890s and early 1900s, which is where Andrew Mellon came from. And, and that was really just about aristocracy. And then it goes into this battle in the middle of the century to create a democratic order, basically a gang fight between Wright Patman and the New Dealers um, against the oligarchs in the U.S., which was paralleled in Europe. I mean, it was paralleled with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and battles in England and France. I mean, there was a global struggle, but I centered on the U.S. And then the collapse of that regime in the 1970s. And the this, this sort of central point is, is antitrust law, which is the kind of law that I, that I study. But it's more about a moral story about how Americans conceived of themselves as producers and citizens for much of the 
20th century, but then you could go back all the way to the English Civil War. And this this fight was, you know, what this has been a key part of Anglo-American history. And then in the 1970s, how we changed our minds to become not citizens, but consumers. And then the implications of that in terms of a society that is increasingly run by distant centers of authority over which we have no control. And this this system, which you know, people think there's a giant conspiracy, but it isn't really even run by anyone anymore. It's just these large institutions that just kind of do what they do and nobody is really in charge. And so that's what the, the book is intended to sort of give people an, a, a, a look back at this tradition that has been so important in America, which is the anti-monopoly tradition. And that has really disappeared in the 1970s and 80s from our collective memories. and. That's why we're in this situation where everyone is frustrated and angry at politics, but they don't kind of have a central route to understand how to bring these institutions back under our control. I wanted to give people a history of that. And then the book was received weirdly. The people that really liked it were on the right, which I did not expect because it was intended. I intended it to offer you know a corrective to the Democratic Party. I wanted to explain why Obama screwed up right without being like he was just a bad guy because it's not what the problem was. Um, and but it was people on the conservative side who actually found it really interesting. And then since then, since it's been published, you know, the antitrust division at the Department of Justice and at the FTC and actually in in England, the CMA and all of in Europe and Japan, all in China, all these places have really revived antitrust law and are bringing suits against um, particularly big tech firms like Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, but also, you know, looking into the healthcare system where there's a lot of consolidation problems in pharmaceutical industry and, and agricultural industry. This, this tradition um, of, of consolidated, of taking on consolidated corporate power, really an anti-aristocratic tradition is coming back. And it's like, it's, it's very much in transition because you still have the old guard that are fighting it very bitterly, but you have like a new guard coming in and saying, wait a second, we've, addressed all of these problems before we have these tools and techniques to do it. So in that sense, it's not like we've broken up Amazon since 2019, since the book came out, but there've been a lot of um, changes in the policy debate. And there actually are antitrust suits against Amazon. Now there are antitrust suits against Google. There are attempts to actually, you know, the CMA, I said this before, uh, broke up, actually did a little breakup of Facebook. So what is the CMA, please? It's the Competition and Markets Authority in and it's the antitrust enforcer for the the UK, right? So the you know the one of the upsides of Brexit, and I don't really know much about Brexit, but one of the upsides is that they don't have to do only what the European antitrust enforcers want. They have their own antitrust enforcer, and the person who's been running it is actually really good, and it's probably the best antitrust enforcer in the world right now. And they have done a number of things that are really interesting. One of them is they've said that Facebook's acquisition of this small company called Jiffy or Giphy, which makes you know, which allows you to use GIFs, they bought that for you know seven hundred million dollars or something like that. Uh, they actually, the CMA said, you can't do that. And they reversed it and forced uh, Facebook to spin that out. And so that's like a, the first breakup that we've seen. So it's the situation is objectively worse for most people today than it was in 2019. But it takes a long time to turn around a, a like a policy regime and a philosophical regime. And that's actually happening. Well, Matt, that's really beautiful um, explanation of a complex historical situation that included so many 
intersecting fragments, the nature of elites and aristocracies, its deep history, the potential for politics to be functional and effective, and the fact that even in, you know, almost, well, yeah, in living memory, there were policies that prevented the kind of conditions that we have seen on the rise. Some of the things, though, that I'd love to pick up on, mate, is the the changing political landscape since 2008 and right up to today where there's a kind of a new discourse around politics and a sense that the habitat of um, rival political tribes is altering as uh, evidenced by the right taking up, um, you know, in favour and in support of, or at least finding interest in your book. Now, in one sense, it's pretty obvious that anything that attacked the Democrat Party would be useful to them. But from a more cultural perspective and in the space I operate in, I've seen that it is the right that is more interested currently in aggressively critiquing power. It's the right that has a more anti-establishment flavour. And um, look, by the way, they're out of you know office, at least in your country, and so their anti-establishment rhetoric may not be entirely sincere. But whether you're talking about the breakup of monopolies or sort of, in a way, sincerely discussing the rights of individuals, opposing censorship. It's, these arguments tend now, particularly in your landscape, to belong to the right. You sort of, and I'm speaking culturally, Matt, more than economically, and I know that economics is your field of expertise, but ultimately, and, and I recognise ultimately that economics is the scaffold around which all of this cultural paraphernalia is hung. But like, it, what really intrigues me is that, one, are you interested in what's happening around right-wing politics? Two, do you feel disappointed in the kind of decline of the Democrats? Do you think that you know the the, the crisis in two thousand and eight sort of kind of created the uh, like the ethno-nationalism and the Trump phenomena and the Brexit that you touched upon? And what's intriguing is no one has made a left-wing argument successfully in these in our countries in anglophonic countries for the rise of populism. In countries like, you know, Greece, the the 2008 crisis saw the rise of Syriza and in Spain, Podemos, like sort of left-leaning populist parties. Now, I know you have identified in your book a particularly pivotal point and a couple of characters that are, that you identify as the architects for the, the, the period that we find ourselves in. But I also spoke on this podcast to Thomas Frank, who we chatted about when we did that Zoom call the other day. We do a Zoom call sometimes, guys. You can just get to that through my mailing list. And we talked about populism and like the, 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 there was a point in history where populism was a determining force within democratic politics and Democrats sort of went another direction. I also, when I spoke to Matt Taby on this podcast, talked about, he talked about 1984 and the way that sort of laws around campaign funding was changed. I recognise now, presumably, as, as a response to the kind of transition you talked about taking place in number seven, uh, in seventy-five around the you know the rise of that Clinton generation you were tagging. Do you feel that the Democrat Party will ever again uh, adopt policies such as the ones that you are advocating for, the anti-monopoly, anti-trust type policies? Or do you think that, you know, when you say stuff like it takes a long while for these things to be inculcated and instantiated, it takes ages, policy and philosophy. Do you th do you not sense, Matt, that there's a kind of something is well, something. It sounds like bullshit. 
Hey, it sounds like bullshit and things are throbbing. There's a priapic force entering from the rear, Matt. Like, you know, that some like, you know, that, that it's if the Democrat Party doesn't adjust and has no desire to adjust and ultimately has been co-opted for, you know, since the, the, since then by the kind of forces that you describe, are the Democrat Party ever going to do anything? And why would we be interested in revivifying it when it doesn't seem that it's going to? And what do you think about the rise of the right? How do you think this is all going to shake down in those areas specifically? Yeah, I mean, both parties, I think, are are. I think I don't look at the problem as kind of like driven by political parties, really. Um, it's driven by ideas. And I think both parties are in transition. They're both fractured. So to give you to like add some meat to the bones about the so I don't talk about economics. I talk about political economy because I think that's a better way to talk about it. But when you talked about how culture hangs off the scaffold of economics, I mean, I don't think there's you can really disentangle culture and commerce. Um, the best the single best antitrust case in the country, and actually probably the world against Google, is coming from a Texas attorney general named Ken Paxton, right? Very, very, very right wing, um, all up in the January 6th stuff, like just, you know, but his case is just great on, on against Google, right? Not, you know, accepting the other stuff. And that's a real case. Uh, it is a real action. Uh, Trump brought the, the federal uh, Google antitrust case in 2020. It was the first monopolization case from the Department of Justice since Microsoft in 1998. So it's 20-year gap. Um, and there, so there are the, the there are real indications, not just fake, you know, rhetoric from out of power that conservatives are interested in this problem. Ohio Attorney General, who's a Republican, brought a case against Google on. Um, what's it called? Uh, a public utility law saying Google is a public utility. There, there is interest, but at the same time, there are also um, Republicans who are pushing very much against this and are saying, uh, you know, big tech is great, and how dare you know the the, the policymakers address these uh, firms that are you know the the best of America, right? And you you see that um, consistently as well, and. Um, and so there's a kind of barbell problem on the inside. You have a lot of staunch, staunch defenders of big tech. And then you have people that are just angry with big tech and kind of in the middle. There's there's not that much. Um, and mostly they're not thinking coherently about the problem because one day they'll be like, Twitter's a monopoly. We need to use public policy. The next day, Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter and they're all like, great, problem solved. Right. And so <laughs> there's, there's, they're, they're like trying to they're. They're very uncomfortable with with government power, with centralized power. But for the last 40 years, they haven't had to deal with it because they've just said, well, we'll allow these corporations to centralize power, but that's not government. And now all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. There's all these private governments around me it called called Google and Facebook. And that's what a monopoly is. It's a private government. And they're uncomfortable with that, but they don't have a coherent way of addressing it because the only way to address a private government, a sort of a rival to the sovereign is with state power itself. And so I've talked to Trump, you know, judges on the, I talked to one Trump judge on the DC circuit court who was just, you know, he was like, you know, I used to think that the way that we did antitrust in the eighties, you know, made sense, but with all of this consolidated power, whether it's, you know, on, on certain places in wall street that are, you know, telling firms that they can't emit as much carbon um, or it's, you know, Facebook censoring conservatives. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe we need to think, rethink antitrust. And that's coming from the and it's not for the same reasons that I would I would, 
you know, want to bring back antitrust, but they are thinking consolidated private power has turned into public power and that is dangerous. So, so they're trying to, that's where they are. And then I think the Democrats, if you like, we've done a lot of focus groups and what, one of the things you'll find is that the Republican voters understand monopoly power much better than democratic voters because they understand business. They're, they're interested in business. They're often local, like kind of local elites, like they'll own an, a car dealership or their own a, a store or whatever it is. And so they understand what it means when a, a Home Depot opens up near them. Like they get that on a, at a visceral level. They understand the act of commerce. They often make things, you know, they, they're, whether they're in oil or they're in lumber, they are in railroads. They know that you have to make something and move it. And that, you know, that's what makes things appear on supermarket shelves. Whereas the democratic voters don't like market power, but it's not like it's not the most important thing to them. They are often the kinds of people who think that food grows in supermarkets, right? <laughs> They're very much like urban and um, they don't think about all the power that goes behind that apple that got into your, you know, that gets into your refrigerator. They don't think about, you know, the, the, the consolidated supply chain, the distributor, the person who picks it, the, you know, all of the pricing choices, the, the patents around the color of the apple, like all the weird little stuff, the rules behind that. And so, so they're just like a lot less knowledgeable about it. Um, but the weird thing is that, you know, the, the democratic party, right. If you look at the people that are making policy, we're the ones, and I'm, I'm a political elite, right. And, and we're the ones who are kind of leading on the intellectual edge of antitrust saying, here's the history, here are the legal tools, here are the new methodologies. And on our enforcers in the FTC and DOJ are great. Um, and yet the voting support there is relatively thin. Mostly the, the Democrats in Congress want to do stuff on antitrust. They've been the ones who've been, you know, saying, doing the research and investigations, but it's not central. Whereas the Republicans, they their establishment is really comes from, you know, for 40 years, it's all been like corporate guys and trade association guys and lobbyists. So they don't know the history. They don't have the technical chops to actually, you know, break up these companies. But their politicians and their voters really want to do stuff. They just don't have the technical chops. So when they're like, we need to do something about Facebook, let's go ask the guy you know, say Tim Muris, who is the guy that ruined antitrust. Let's ask him what to do. And then he's like, well, I don't think you should do anything. And then they get very confused. And so that's just weird. It's you've got the voters who want to break up consolidated power on the right, but the policy people that know how to do it and want to do it on the left. Why are the left not willing to engage in acting upon those policies? Why has the left been captured by what seems to some like a sats emphatic demonstrative and performative acts of ineffectual politics and avoided these fundamental economic issues that went down in the time you described and burned the good faith between the Democratic Party and the American population? Why is it that, that, that all you know when you say the stuff about they think the fruit grows in supermarkets? And I don't buy that ordinary Americans and ordinary British people are by and large racist. It's no, you know, when I'm talking, obviously, I suppose about white people, because a significant portion of the ordinary working class people are not white anyway. But the, to, my point is, is that 
these kind of this kind of cultural war is being exacerbated to keep people divided, and a, a huge contributing factor has been the ineffectiveness of the Democratic Party, the unwillingness to get their hands dirty, and the same things sort of happen again. Now I know you understand the complexity of politics that maybe one of the reason that pledges are made in campaigning that ain't fulfilled in government is because oh there was all sorts of obstacles that suddenly appeared in administration. But what it feels like to ordinary people, because I I met one once and I spoke to them, then they they said, said oh, that it, like <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> he smelt delicious. I like um like was uh, <laughs> was that uh, is that, that, that there is no desire because you know that the Democrat Party is funded in the same way that the Republican Party is and it's lobbying money and they're never going to do anything and they don't really want to do anything and Barack Obama's the dude that signed the checks that bailed out the banks and Biden's the person that was there and like you know like there's so much mis you know you, you know mistrust and distrust and like that that um, well, so why is it if the tech ability exists within the Democrat party that there's no willingness to act on it. Okay. So, so there's, there's willingness. Okay. It's a really hard question. Okay. But the answer is that the Democrats, the Biden administration, the Democrats are acting on it, but it's not central, right? So you have, what you have in the Biden administration is, is you got a bunch of people that disagree you have antitrust enforcers that are bringing cases and because the law has been ruined, right? You can't, it takes years to bring a case, right? So even if you get, um, you know, we got a really good enforcer at the federal trade commission. Her name is Lena Khan. And she's the one who kind of wrote this paper that really reorganized how we think about antitrust. It was called the Amazon, Amazon's antitrust paradox. So she gets into the FTC and she wants to do a bunch of stuff, but the Biden administration doesn't bother to appoint a fifth commissioner because it's a commission. And so she needs a majority for, you know, four or five months. And then the Democratic Senate doesn't bother to confirm that person for another seven months. And so she just got a majority like last month. And now they can start to do things. And it was because the Republicans on the commission are bitterly opposed to, her, to what she's trying to do. Not because they're Republicans. They, they were bitterly opposed to Trump's chairman when he wanted to go after big tech. It's just that they are like libertarian monopoly types. And so they're working with the business establishment in the Republican Party to really undermine what uh, what the chair is is trying to do. But she's going to start doing some stuff, but it's going to it's just like it's going to take some time to actually start to do the research, to do the depositions and the whole government. Right. You go into it for everyone from the FDA to, you know, the the Federal Reserve, wherever you go. They have they they are self-satisfied and have been sort of ruined. They are afraid to wield power in any meaningful way. And so you have these giant bureaucracies. You know, Trump called them the deep state, but you know, they subvert what uh political people want to do. So you have like kind of two problems, right? The the main problem being that Biden kind of wants to do some stuff on monopoly power and finance, but he's got a bunch of people, but he kind of doesn't. Like he's more transactional. And so he just sort of doesn't make decisions. And then like the Democratic, like the Democratic kind of communicating class, the MSNBCs in that world, they really hate talking about business and market power. It confuses them. It frustrates them. Their friends say it's not important. They worship economists. And so they don't message on this stuff in any coherent way. So nobody hears it and no one hears that it's happening, but it is happening. And it's it's just that it's not the central priority. And so you know, and so it's not having a big enough effect. It takes too long. The government is kind of ruined. But these are the kinds of things that happen in periods of transition. And, you know, 
it, it like m- kind of my critique of the Biden administration is that by and large, they're not doing very much. They just like what they do is they have, you know, take crypto, which I think is a scam. Right. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether you think it's a scam or not. If you think it's the greatest thing ever, you know, what you want is an administration that makes a decision about crypto. But instead of making a decision about crypto, they got one guy who thinks it's a scam. They got another guy who thinks it's a scam. And they got another guy at a different regulator that thinks it's great. And then they got another person at a different regulator who's like, I want to do something, but I don't have authority. Then you got another. And, and so what they do is they come out with an executive order that basically says, Crypto is a thing. We should do a bunch of studies. You know, they don't do anything. And the same thing is true about like the, you know, relationships with China. The same thing is true kind of like across the board. So they're not, they're in, because there's just these deep disagreements and Biden allows himself to be paralyzed by these disagreements, not, not very much is happening. And then the communicating class, the like MSNBC types, all they understand is, and the New York Times, they understand is just like, cultural, like inflaming people on a cultural level and just like the, you know, the doom scrolling, like which they they sort of pursue. And so what you hear is um, and what what most people hear is just this like constant nothing is happening um, in and that all the Democrats care about is, you know, weird setting up new weird bureaucracies and censoring and like strange, like insincere diversity initiatives or whatever it is that you hear the deeper, like sort of bureaucratic moves are, they're not having an effect yet because they take a while. And because like Biden's not really totally behind them. Um, But, you know, ultimately I don't care um, which like it, the Democratic Party is just a legal entity and they're same with the Republican Party. And what to, to me, I think what's most important is to figure out how you move aside all of these kind of old policymakers and old sort of bureaucrats in all of these agencies and also in corporations and say, like, this isn't working. We need a different kind of society that's based on the different premise. And this is an ugly it's like an ugly period. Right. Where we haven't you know, we um, I'm, you know, there's uh, Gramsci who said, you know, like the old order is dying, but the or, but the new order hasn't yet been born. Now is the time of monsters or something like that. And it's like, that's what this is. Right. I mean, you can't push aside. You know, I heard a great term the other day, which is by one of my colleagues. He talked about this term called escalating commitment, which is when somebody has been doing something for a really long time and they're really invested in it. Like we look at market power in this very narrow way. And that's what I've spent 30 years doing. And then it turns out, or banking power, banking deregulation is good. And I've been doing this for 30 years. And then it turns out that what they thought would happen, a more fair society, a richer society, whatever it is, doesn't happen. You have a crash, you have a catastrophe, whatever it is. Rather than saying, oh, I was wrong and changing their minds, they're so invested in whatever it is that they've been doing that they double down on it escalating commitment. And this is a consistent problem in any professional ethos, whether it's the scientific establishment, a public health establishment, policymaking establishment, whatever it is. And the only way to get around that is to move a different set of policymakers and thinkers and activists and, and lawyers and whatever, you know, citizen types into like, you've got to just kind of move those bureaucracies around and get new thinking in there. And sort of we're starting that, but like everybody in power is still like 80 years old. So it's not really happening fast enough. When you describe the bureaucratic complexity and when I I get a sense of how turgid and static it is, 
I feel that the perfect precondition for a kind of globalist technocracy is being created because if there are sort of sets of unelected globalist bodies that come in and say, we can solve these problems, this is how people behave, if you can control their data in this way, if they ID in this way, this will be helpful. You know, it seems like the... Like, and, being a it's like a super boring conspiracy. Yeah, it's a super boring conspiracy, and 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 what I feel like the the, the sort of the, when you say that the, we exist in a, a liminal space that the new way hasn't been born, I feel that in a sense the kind of nostalgia inherent in a president like Trump and the idea, well, like the literal nostalgia, like the word again being significant, you know, in their in their mantra, for me suggests that what needs to be captured and you said at the beginning of our conversation about like the the nature of the human spirit as well as the human spirit I'm interested in human behavior and I'm interested in human history and I'm interested in pre-civilized human it's not not human history at that point is it it's like sort of anthropology like how we live how we organize what we require and if we use that as a kind of template, well, it seems like human beings, when there isn't a dominating, sovereign, centralizing force imposing a reality on them by means of economics and culture, people behave in this way. It seems that people live in smaller groups. It seems that people have hierarchies but are somewhat democratic. It seems that people live somewhat harmoniously with the, within their environment. Now, like I'm not kind of like some drunken Rousseauian loon and think that we should return to the sort of the planet and the plains and the jungles and the lakes. I feel like that we, but when looking for principles around how we might organize our lives, we we shouldn't presume that these kind of systems that you've spent a lot of time explaining and, and helping me to understand the sort of the considerable freight that comes with that, like that, that hegemony and that oddly insipid bureaucratic theology, that it's in a sense creating the conditions for its own extinction. It's inviting revolution. It's telling people this stuff takes so long and it's so bloody boring and it's so beset with obstacles and it's so detached from your reality as a person that has to get up and go to work and put on a screen and put on some jeans that you might as well start considering some radical alternatives because all of these structures are various forms of legal and bureaucratic fiction. And of course, it comes with considerable risk to do something radical rather than something reforming. But when you like there, there is a literal nostalgia, Matt, even to your own area of study of looking at like those significant figures that held in place those pieces of legislation that were ultimately blown away by the march of capitalism and the power of big finance. You know, it seems to me that what people need is a kind of invigorating folkish m- myth. And I can understand why the last century has brought horror into our lives, you know, because of the power of ideas like that, the power of uh, embracing the human spirit and the relationship between human beings and the land. Uh, But like, I feel that we have to do something somewhat radical, Matt. And I don't know why someone as um, bold in their thinking and as articulate in uh, in their communication as you would assume that it has to be sort of housed within the two legal entities that, you, that you've described. Well, so this is a really good point. I and mean, I think the radical piece that's sort of drained out of um, uh, U.S. politics, Western politics, presumably, but U.S. politics more is um, the metaphysical question of of um you know judeo-christian you know ethical the ethical foundations of the american state are were religious and um you know and and that 
I mean, I think people, when they don't have a, when people don't have a metaphysical language to communicate with each other, they create cults. And I think that a lot of the culture warring that you see is imbuing like traditional, like sanctification over political figures. Like if you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, what people were saying about her was effectively making her a saint, right? All the religious iconography, the same things were like, on the Democratic side, you see a huge amount of sanctification of political, of you know, cults of personality, basically. And I think you see that on the right somewhat as well. Um, I would say, you know, when I talk about like the turgid nature and the slow nature, like it's it's a very, it's very exciting intellectually. But I will say that the reason it's so slow, there's nothing inherently slow about bureaucracies. We happen to have bureaucracies that are slow by design right now. The reason is because the uh, Federal Reserve has been printing, I'd say like, what is it? Something like since the financial crisis, they printed about $9 trillion. That's was a, a friend of mine wrote a book called um, The Lords of Easy Money about the Federal Reserve. And he says they printed 600 years of money within the span of 10 years or something like that. And when you do that, what happens is the culture becomes one on which commerce is a bad, commerce is a big part of human, of human society, right? Always has been. Commerce becomes less about doing things, building things that may solve a purpose and more about hustling over how to get, get a financial asset that will escalate in value. And so right now we're in this very weird, the last 10 years since the financial crisis, or I say the first financial crisis, um, but it's the last you know, 12, 14 years since that financial crisis, we've been in this very strange period where people think about government and, and, and commerce as, and finance and stuff as like, how do we rush to get in on the next like asset valuation craze and nobody in government wants to do anything to affect that. So the, the bureaucracy and then, I mean, Greece, you know, Podemos, all those guys, you know, Syriza, they all failed, right? Because they were caught in the same like financial trap, which is like, we need to sustain high financial like asset values or else people will lose the perception of what they have, like their perception that they have this wealth as opposed to actual wealth, which is, you know, what you were being able to make things that people need. And and so we're kind of like trapped right now in uh, in a financial system which has like excessively elevated asset values. And, and if we try to change anything that will lower asset values and cause a, like a reordering of our of our social hierarchies. And so when the Fed right now has to has to actually pop those asset bubbles and when the Fed does that, when you do see a financial like financial shakeup, right? then what you will see is like all of a sudden things can move really quickly. So I don't know if you were, you, I was paying attention to COVID in like January and February because I was, I'm obsessed with China and they were like, oh, there's this respiratory disease coming from China, January, February of 2020. There's this respiratory disease in China that's shutting down the country. And I'm like, that seems bad. And <laughs> I was freaking out about it and being like stocking up on food and like medical stuff and like, you know, do, you know, doom or prep stuff. But the, the, the moment when policy elites in the U.S. took it seriously, and I'll never forget this, it's not when like public health people were like, oh, maybe this is a thing. It's when the stock market went down, right? It's like then people were like, oh, this is serious. People with money are actually like betting on this being a thing, right? And so that's how we determine in, you want to get really like at the core of how we think about policy it's all about whether the stock market is going up and down. And it's been that way 
since probably the 1980s is not inherent to capitalism. There is no such thing. I don't think there is such a thing as capitalism. I think we have lots of different systems over time. Things are very flexible, as you noted. Humans can live in all sorts of different ways. What the problem, like what FDR did in the 30s was not that he made the stock market go up or down. His main accomplishment was making the stock market irrelevant. And that's what we need to get to. We need to make these financial markets irrelevant to how we make social decisions. And right now they are so dominant because of the policies that the Federal Reserve, this kind of like the ultimate deep state institution has pursued to warp our economy and ultimately warp ourselves. And that's like, Amazing. you want you want the revolution, it's gonna happen, uh, an intellectual revolution, a peaceful you know, transition. It's going to happen when the, the this huge, like trillions and trillions of dollars of asset uh, bubbles, when that pops, we're gonna have to reorient and reconfigure how we do things. That could be very dark, it could be very good, but that is like how I think about it. So what is creating the stagnation and the bureaucracy is this, unreal moment of like bubble finance. That's beautiful. Yeah, so it's, it's an abstraction in so, to some degree. Like when you talk about like 600 years worth of uh, finance being pumped out in a 10 year period, when you talk about a kind of a, a constructed reality, an economic reality that's sort of to, to faith based and confidence based and requires our commitment in order to exist and that that then begins to determine political decisions and uh, like a, a global level. You know, when you say, when one says from a metaphysical perspective, we're living in an illusion, we actually are. Our reality is being determined by sets of fictions that are no more real than particular sets of religious ideologies. And, And many of them are tethered to deep archetypal emotions that all human beings feel and are sort of somewhat ubiquitous, somewhat universal even, and perhaps therefore have a, a deeper reality and ought to, ought to have a greater influence when it comes to sort of making decisions for how to organise systems, how to organise the planet. Matt, I want to uh, guide you into the choppy waters in the, in the, of the wonderful world of conspiracy. Now, when like a, <laughs> so when like a, I'll tell you a quick a quick story oh about God. how to understand. So, so there was this is part of my book. And it's about the 1925 land bubble in Florida. Yes. By the way, every financial crisis involves Florida and Citibank. Those are the two things. That's what, that's one one thing I learned in my book and when doing research. So there was this town there. Everybody was speculating on Florida real estate yes. and at, in the twenties and like people hadn't been deflating care if they were in Florida, like it just, they were just trading lots of land. And there was this one town called Nettie that became like a, there was speculative fervor and people were trading lots of land uh, and buying and selling it. And it turns out later on, people realized that Nettie didn't actually exist. <laughs> it's a great story because when you're when you have a lot of land in Netty and someone is willing to buy it for a certain amount of money, even though it doesn't exist, even though the reference point doesn't exist, it still has value, mm. right? The the fraud has value until it doesn't, right? And that's what's weird about like a, a financial bubble is that things are based are frauds or they are just like completely disconnected from anything in reality, but they still have value as long as the fraud keeps going, as long as the Ponzi keeps going, and that's kind of like where we are. I think right now where a lot of things that people are like, this is crazy. This doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, you could look at like crypto or or meme stocks or whatever it is. They're like, this is nuts. But it's like, it's true. It's nuts. But as long as the music keeps going, 
right? People are going to keep dancing. And that's what's weird about like yes. this unreal finance. Anyway, so I, I just thought I'd make it like- It's nice. Like it's a- good that you gave us a concrete example. And also it's sort of things like, you know, the non-fungibles and all that stuff. It's not yeah. unprecedented. It's just a sort of a continuation of a of a, an economic ideal that's been imprinted for, for you know, yeah, always. Because that's what well, a token is. Because I cut you off and you you were having a question about let's get into conspiracies. Yes, I do want to get into conspiracies, Matt. And don't try it at this late stage to pretend to be polite because it's too late. You've barreled all <laughs> over my conspiracy questions in a, what seems to be a lilac shirt. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was I was actively being rude and by then pretending I wasn't. So it's okay. It's okay. You've just said that nothing, even the financial system about around which we base our total ontology is real. So what's a, 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 a little brash exchange between friends? This area of conspiracy theories, I, I suppose it, why conspiracy theories, like, let me give you some specific examples. During the time of the pandemic, people felt that there was a wealth transfer and indeed there was. The, the pandemic was beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry. It was somehow beneficial to the government in terms of new regulations could be introduced and it sort of eased the passage for ideas such as, um, you know, uh, COVID passports and digital IDs and possibly even made things like social credit scoring a closer reality than they might otherwise have been. I'm certainly not interested in talking about the the nature of the coronavirus, you know, even though I've done loads of videos on the sort of Wuhan lab versus the wet market and those kind of things that, that sort of at least seem to me to be at least equally viable theories of the origin of the coronavirus. But what I am interested in is when crisis serves power and how power responds to it seems mendacious and at least not transparent. People, and when there's this general sense that power is so obtuse and inaccessible, it creates a sort of a climate where, you know, conspiracy theories seem more um, palpable and appealing. Now, when Edward Snowden, I had a conversation with Edward Snowden on here, and like he says, like, you know, look, look, you don't have to get into the lizards and the aliens or any of that stuff because here's what's happening. The NSA are stealing your data. These kind of like these, you know, centralized currencies are something that's been increasingly talked about. But like, you know, you're being observed in ways that are sort of would have been unthinkable decades ago. So I wonder what you feel about that last two years. I wonder how you feel power responded to it. And I wonder if you feel that that crisis was exploited and if, it, there, if there was a reckoning as part of this pandemic somehow. I mean, that's a really big question. Of course. And what do you think we're going to do on here? Yeah, I mean, I just want, I want very simple questions of addition. That's <laughs> all I can do. Um, are you nice? That's my next question. Are you a nice person? Yes or no? My favorite color is blue. Um, I would say the pandemic didn't do anything, particularly for wealth and power. The policy response to the pandemic did what it did to wealth and power. Okay. And that policy response happened. I mean, we were, I was paying attention to this. um, So I started a think tank called the American Economic Liberties Project in uh, January of 2020. So like right before the pandemic. And it was with a colleague who worked in treasury, uh, during the Obama administration, I worked in Congress and we were both like, we think that we shouldn't have foreclosed on everyone. Let's start a think tank to spread the idea that maybe we shouldn't hurt people using government policy. We should try to address consolidated power. And the first, really the first thing that we did was, was in March, right. When 
the pandemic hit and the stock market crashed. And all of a sudden there were all of these people that couldn't pay their debts, corporations that couldn't pay their debts because their revenue was going to disappear. Um, and that would imply mass bankruptcies and lots of huge problems. Congress started debating something called the CARES Act. And the CARES Act was um, a, had three parts. And it was, it was in response to a crisis, right? The economy is gonna like fall off a cliff because we have this, this pandemic and we don't know what this disease does. So we have to do three things. One, we have to make sure there's not a financial crisis, okay? There was a run on, there was essentially a high level run on banks at the time. Two, people are gonna be hurting. So we need to help them with expanded unemployment benefits and, um, and maybe even like cash checks to make sure that all the people that are laid off have some money. That was, this is the US, every country handled it differently, but they all sort of thought about like, what, what do we do when you freeze the society? And the third piece is, how do you help ensure that the millions of small businesses that we have that are, you know, don't have a lot of cash, they don't have a lot of buffer, that they don't go out of business. And so the, the Congress debated these three things and come together and like took care of all of them in, in what's called the CARES Act. We were like, Sarah and I, Sarah Miller is the person I started this organization with. We had both seen the first bailout in 2008. And we saw what happened when they said, the men in suits really say you need to bail out Wall Street. And so we said, okay, do the small business aid, do the unemployment, but don't do the Wall Street bailout, right? Unless you put really strong strings on that. And there were some members like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders said, let's put some strings on this. But people were terrified. Right. They were just terrified. And I don't just mean policymakers like ordinary people were seeing, you know, the stock market crash and, and they were seeing like everyone was scared. And so the CARES Act, you know, we came out and we said, don't do this. This is a bad idea. All the other nonprofit groups and like stakeholders in the in on the right and the left. Right. Everyone was like too panicked to even think about what was happening. And so the bill passed 98 to zero, 99 to zero. And the bill gave huge amounts of discretion to the Federal Reserve. And then the Federal Reserve took that and printed four or five trillion dollars, bailed out huge amounts of uh, lots and lots of parts of our um, uh, of, of our financial system, including private equity firms, but also, you know, lots of other like Carnival Cruise Lines, you know, like lots of just random parts of the economy got a bailout. And so you had someone like Elon Musk, right? Whatever you think about him, he was worth $20 trillion, $20 billion in uh, 2019. And today he's worth like $200, $250 billion. And that's largely just because of the, the increase in stock valuations for Tesla. So it's not like it, and it's, Tesla's not a much bigger or more profitable company. It's roughly, it's a little bit bigger, but like this is just a pure asset valuation increase that happened because the Fed just pumped large amounts of money into the stock market and financial system. But on the other hand, the unemployment insurance worked well, and so did the aid to small businesses. There was a lot of fraud in both programs, but like they did actually kind of help a, a bunch of people. But what, what really happened is because they handed over huge amounts of authority to this kind of like shadowy central bank to like do whatever it wanted, it kind of like anesthetized everybody else in politics and policy and said, well, we can't hand do anything and don't worry, the Fed has got this. And all the Fed knows how to do is hand over money to Wall Street. So that's like the central political problem is that we just chose it, as a response to the pandemic, out of fear, we chose out of fear to defer to the men in suits, right? And it wasn't quite as bad as 2008 because in 2008, we didn't get the unemployment. We didn't get the aid to small. We didn't get the stuff for like the rest of us. And this time, like we did, but it still was a really bad deal. And that was because people were afraid. 
and um, a kind of up and down in both parties. There was just this tremendous fear as this crisis was hitting. And that's that's like kind of the core of it in in um, in 1933, you know, FDR dealt with a crisis by reorganizing American society and through social hierarchy, like reordering the social hierarchy in the financial system. In 1933, Hitler did it in Germany in a very different and much darker and scarier way. We've reorganized our society in fundamental ways in 2008 and nine. We did it again in 2020. And it's like, we have to recognize the root of this is the policy choices that we made to consolidate wealth and power because we were afraid and we were like, we have to trust the experts and the experts say to consolidate wealth and power. We have to get away from that and like build a different way of thinking so that when there is the next kind of financial, you know, combobulation, that's not a word, but a combobulation, you know, whatever it is that we can make different choices. And I think we're kind of getting there, but like things are really bad. Like people are experiencing a sense of powerlessness and rage. Lifespans are going down. Like it's a really bad situation, um, and uh, it's going to these crises are going to continue to happen until somebody really reorders things in a way that creates more stability. And that can happen in very dark ways, but it's going to happen. Um, it could happen in in great ways too. But, so that's the way I like look at it. When you talked about that thing about escalating commitment, where people continue to commit to their ideology even in spite of evidence that suggests their ideology is warped or incorrect. I feel that um, that's happening at the level of policy. You're excellent at describing the sort of organs of uh, government, of that these are the relationships that exist, these are the reasons these things happen. But whether you're talking about the sort of the pandemic and that the, the solution to this crisis is to consolidate or, you know, this, uh, you know, further advantage power, just in the example you gave of Elon Musk, who happens to be pretty positive about me and my work, and I therefore like, on well, based on nothing other than that, at all. I, I mean, I could make critiques, but I wasn't saying there was a critique. I was just saying he was worth $20 billion. Can you say Bezos? Because I don't like it. As far as I know, Jeff Bezos doesn't watch our show and therefore, you so, know. Jeff Bezos. God, that guy. Well, I don't know how that much That bloody, that greedy, that capitalist pig. Whereas Be Be uh, Elon Musk, oh, he's a maverick. He's a maverick, isn't he? He won't play by the rules. Um, no, I well, like it. It's good that he's that, is that he, his wealth has gone up. By yeah, well done. He's a go-getter. If you're right. willing to work, American dream. If you, if you do a, a fair day's work for a fair day's asset, get bigger. You've explained yeah, it, I don't, I, don't see, I don't see anybody else building reusable rockets. Where so are they? Get, where's your rockets then? And your car's made of electricity, for God's yeah. sake, you layabouts. Get off your ass and do it. And he does those flamethrowers. I like him. Buying Twitter. Brilliant. And he, he's, he's probably going to be a guest on our show. I like him. Like, just, he's a good guy. Now, he's the most uh, interesting oligarch. He's my, of all of them, he's my favorite. Now, um, so um, what I want to say, yeah. And then when you apply it to the, the sort of Ukraine war, mate, like the response ultimately, you know, with the lethal aid and all that stuff, you, once again, a consolidation of power. Like, you know, in a sense, like with, I re like here's a pretty reductive analogy. Within the sort of individual human neurology, there are synaptic pathways that are well-traveled due to behavior and some pathways untouched. A habit could be probably represented on a neurological level. You could see what, you know, heroin addiction looks like or even a walk to your favorite path park. And now... I, I wonder, you know, like if when the, you know, if when there's a war, or if you have a nation uh, like yours, Matt, and I'm not judging you, where there is a sort of a perpetual war, and that perpetual war 
continues to benefit Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and then you see that generals sort of turn up working at Lockheed Martin or Raytheon and then they turn up on CNN or MSNBC advocating for the particular solutions. It's difficult not to think that a comparable template exists in the sort of field of foreign affairs and military uh, as exists in domestic affairs and finance and that the sort of the, the, the requirement for some like for a significant populist movement that interrupts this flow even in spite of the the fact that you know like chaos is likely to generate some suffering and require some sacrifice but i feel that as you you know when you started your litany of observable suffering even using the um Te- the technocratic talking points of those that will one day reduce us to nothing but data, life expectancy, body fat mass or whatever we're judged as now. You know, when that stuff starts to be calculable, you know, I, I started to, a mate of mine a little while ago, Matt, I don't know if you met him when we were hanging out more, John Rogers, he, I remember him saying, he goes like, things are getting bad enough in this country that even kind of 1980s style East Germany state communism would be an improvement for a significant number of people. Even the grey, banal, culturally sort of dead, you've got, you know, that, you know, you get a house, you get a job, you know, like, you, you know, like, and I'm obviously not advocating for communism. That's certainly not that kind of grey, banal type of communism. You know, I'm a spiritualist. I believe in the human soul. I'm a libertarian. I'm an anarchist. I'm a, an errant child. I'm a wanderer. I'm a minstrel. I'm a boy with a glint in his eye. Have you seen these trainers? Like, you know, what I'm saying is, is that, that when things get this bad, People have to, I believe, stop thinking about how to reorganise deck chairs and tweak dials and start thinking, well, how radical is it what FDR did? How much more radical could we be? What does decentralisation at every level look like? Even though you, you know, when you challenge a hegemony, it's difficult to do that without a counter hegemony. We all recognise that, but it does sound pretty radical to hear someone say, you know, make the stock markets irrelevant. And in our own sort of um, brief political fluctuations in this country, which was the rise of you know Jeremy Corbyn, read Bernie Sanders, you know, it was interesting really that the kind of things that were being talked about fifty years ago wouldn't have been seen as that radical nationalizing a few things fair pay for ordinary workers right to unionize but I, I again i'm not advocating for dusty old socialism i feel that we need to sort of recognize that the world has significantly changed in terms of technology in terms of ideology and like so many things have altered and i i can't see a way around this without significant decentralization at every level and the real challenge we have to manage is how do you count how do you create a population movement if it is built upon true democracy, where people begin to run their own communities, their own schools, their own workplaces, begin to address the way that they actually live their life, begin to address sort of fundamental ideas, Matt, such as your um, Native American philosopher, Russell Means, I think he was called, said that um, you know, I'm sure this would have come up before no, maybe I didn't know it when we last used to talk um, uh, the British philosopher Brad Evans told me this, that Russell Means said that when when a lot of uh, activists in I guess the 70s and 80s said that the, the, the Native, uh, the Indigenous movement in your country should align with Marxism. He said to us, communism and capitalism are uh, the, just different sides of the same coin. Both of them assume that the earth is a resource to, to, you know, to, for us to for toil and industry and labour and that the function of a human being is as a worker, as a unit of labour. We have a completely different 
perspective on reality. And, and these are the kind of things that I think we have to investigate. I think that what we're talking about is a kind of new folk movement, a kind of new relationship with the mystery, a new relationship with individualism, with consciousness itself. And I feel that the genies out of the bottle post 80s people see themselves as individuals people don't see themselves as members of a parish anymore even in this kind of God, enthusiastic culture war that's going on where people very much, you know, seemingly in the politics in your country, see themselves as on one side or the other. That stuff don't really break down, I don't feel, into everyday life. I feel like it's abstract when it comes to it. I feel that if we can focus people on what is your life like? How are you living in your community? What is happening to you every day? Your actual reality. These are, these are the kind of uh, things that need to be revitalized. And if there are all these bureaucratic and commercial and financial abstractions, these kind of decisions can never be made they can't even really be discussed so how difficult would that be for like for a movement of that nature to emerge in the uh, in the american political landscape and how longer can we continue to avoid it i don't think it's hard um you know one of the things so the, the the government the american government like one of the my worries with the biden administration coming in was i was like our government can't do anything like we suck it you know because the the institutions have been like sabotaged or broken. So we can't deliver much. One thing we can do is we can still write checks. We know how to do that. So I, I was I was like, what Biden should do when he comes into office, the first thing he should do is he should forgive a lot of student debt mm. and just, just do that because the government knows how to write checks. And then what you do when you do that, and you help 20, 30, 40 million people, whatever it is, is that you show we can do something to change, mm. to improve or to change lives. Yeah. Like we can do something. Like the government can work even if it doesn't always work. Mm. Um, and instead of doing that, he like procrastinated for 18 months and is like, maybe I'll do something, maybe I won't. And, but of course I'm going to make it not administrable. It'll be like a nightmare. Cause what I saw during the financial crisis is that a lot of the things that they were trying to do to like deal with foreclosures, they would set up a hotline to help, but then that would route you to the bank. turns out they set up all this bureaucracy just to keep people like spinning their wheels. And, but like, that's not inherent, right? Like, Donald Trump, like liberals don't like to admit this and neither do conservatives, but Donald Trump with Operation Warp Speed created a vaccine in record time for disease we had never seen before and, or he didn't create it, but he like facilitated the creation and, um, and distributed it for free to everyone who wanted it, right? You never, you never heard the debate about like, oh my God, immigrants are coming into New York and walking into CVS and stealing our vaccine. Like that wasn't that was that never became a problem because it was free to everyone. And it just became like a thing you could get like and Democrats. You know, if you're a left winger and you're arguing like we need Medicare for all, the way you should do it is you should say, remember how it wasn't a pain in the ass to get the vaccine. That's how all healthcare should be. Yeah. Right. You just be able to go and do it and like not have to pay any money. And like you pay it through taxes and then it's like easy. Right. And, that, and we did that. Like that is something the government did. And it, it dramatically changed the way people dealt with this disease. And people forget about that because we have like the narratives are all like screwed up. But that is a thing that we did. And there are many things that the government does that change people's lives in positive ways. It's just that like, you know, the, our, we make we, we take narrative choices to say that that is that is better. Things are not possible. Um, and I think this gets to like how a lot of the left uh, that the brains are broken because it's like, what you could say is, wow, what an amazing thing that even 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 the right wing, even Donald Trump in a moment of crisis 
chose to make government work and solve collective action. We should do that. But for, you know, why not cancer? Why not, you know, diabetes? Why not all these other things? And just build a healthcare system that way, use those arguments. But instead, they said, Donald Trump is like the worst man ever. And anything that he did, we can't be associated with. And they didn't literally didn't notice that the that he implemented a single payer system for that particular type of treatment. So it's like, I don't think it's that hard to explain what, like how to do it. I don't think it's inherent that these things are slow and bureaucratic and shitty. It's because we have examples of that. Like we just launched this amazing telescope called the James Webb telescope. That's going to be able to look and see like, you know, the big bang, basically like it's this incredible stuff. There's all this cool stuff that's happening, but like we just choose to get addicted to telling a story about human, the human, human nature that we are, we have no control over our, over our lives or over our communities, over that capitalism, communism thing, where another piece of it is inevitableism. It's not just turning people into data. It's also saying man's authority to do anything about his, the nature of his society is tiny. And I don't believe that. Um, and, And so I think that that's like, a fundamental part of reordering of like, this is why, again, why I really like what you do. It's like, you start from the, like from the individual consciousness and you start, you say the change has to start here and then it can go like outward. And and I kind of came to that backwards because I started, you know, from the idea, well, well, change starts with politics. But then when I saw what happened and why people were in politics were making bad decisions, I was like, Oh, they have a conception of self and they have a conception of humanity and the nature of the soul that leads to all of these bad political decisions. So I think you kind of like a lot of the stories that like the stories are choice, like there's data, there's there's evidence for any number of stories that you want to tell. That's beautiful. Reality itself. Yeah. Yeah. And reality is not made of atoms. It's made of stories. That's very beautiful, Matt. Oh, Matt, thanks for coming on. We've talked for 71 minutes and 53 seconds. And by God, I felt every one of them. It's very lovely to spend time in your company and to see you looking so lovely. And I hope we get to collaborate more on a wide variety of projects and that some of them will move beyond conjecture and into the actual man- manifesting of new realities. I mean, look, I think what you are doing is and your audience, I mean, the, the, the people that are paying attention to what you're saying, I mean, I, I, I think what you're doing and saying is important. And I think your journey, what I've like, you know, we haven't talked in a, in a, in a while, but I've seen like kind of where you've been and the, the, the ideas you've explored and you've tried things and succeeded at some and failed at others. And you've always been learning. And, and I think that that's such an important way to model behavior and to like go through politics in the in the in the best sense and so i really admire that and i think it's it's um you know i'm i'm honored that you invited me on to talk about this stuff and i you know i just have great respect for you lots of love matt stoller bye mate bye thank you for listening to wonder the skin with matt stoller let me know what you thought of it what you think about it how you're feeling by reaching out to me on instagram you can tag me at russell brand or tweet me at rusty rockets using the hashtag under the skin if you enjoyed this conversation you might also like the conversation with paul Kingsnorth, remember that um, Lily was talking about him earlier, or Thomas Frank, who talked about populism. You'll enjoy both of those things. Paul Kingsnorth, a bit more of a radical thinker. Thomas Frank, with his understanding of populism, helped to, um, I can see, you're basically doing, a, getting yourself a degree, a university degree, or a, a diploma. Is that what you get in America? You tell me. I can't remember. I don't know how you educate yourselves over there. Also, remember to go and listen to Above the Noise right now. The latest episode, Calming a Chaotic Mind, is a beautiful guided meditation I did for someone. One of our listeners requested it, and uh, I, I think you all enjoy it too. I pray you will. Also, remember, sign up to my Awakening YouTube channel where I give you lots of uh, 
well, I don't know, saying I give you spiritual wisdom seems a bit grandiose. I pass on things I've remembered from wise people. You'll love it. But the latest one, How to Control Your Inner Life, is an absolute joy. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin. <laughs>